we're all in the same thing, trying to figure out this same struggle. And on a very logistical, you know, tangible note, what I have been trying to do, and we talked a little bit about in our last conversations about expectation setting and the fact if we expect ourselves to be insanely hyperproductive 24 hours a day, then inevitably we will burn out and inevitably we will come up short because that's an impossible expectation. And then we're going to feel frustrated and disappointed and we'll lose our motivation. And it is a skill to be able to set one's expectations for what we can achieve to a reasonable level because it means having self-awareness. It means recognizing how long things take. Hello, everyone. Welcome back or welcome to another episode of the Feeding Curiosity podcast. I'm your host, Eric Wenzel, as always. Feeding Curiosity is a podcast that explores the precarity of human experience. It's about the events in our life and how we make sense of those experiences to live the most fulfilling life that we can. And it's my hope that through these conversations, you can take away blueprints to learn and lead a more fulfilling life for yourself. And with that, everyone, please enjoy today's episode. My guest today is Adam Lowenstein, returning to the podcast. Adam is the author of Reframe Today, Embracing the Craft of Life, One Day at a Time, which outlines 10 practices for creating a more fulfilling life. Adam previously spent eight years working in the American government and politics, most recently as a speechwriter and a strategic communication advisor in the United States Senate. Today, Adam lives in London with his partner, Aaron, and writes frequently about politics, work, and life. As I said, this is Adam's second time on the podcast, and we left our first conversation, which I'll link in the show notes, with many cliffhangers and much more to unpack. We took a few weeks and reconnected, and in this conversation, we spend a lot of our time talking around achievement and reorienting the goalposts of our life and how we get swept up by short-term thinking and what we're doing as like a selfish pursuit when trying to lead a more fulfilling life, when in reality, the reason you should try to develop yourself to be the best version of yourself that you can is so that you can be a better person for those you care about and then by proxy for the world. And we spend some time near the end of this conversation talking about voting. And now this podcast is releasing right as the first presidential debate between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. And we all know how that went. And so this podcast, I don't think could be any more timely world because I can't see a more important time that we need as many of us to getting out there and speaking our mind and, and to do what it is that we can do in a democracy. We have more power individually than we think we do. If we all decided to speak on something or all at the very least decided to talk with each other. We can create a groundswell, and I think we can do that. And toward the end, I said it and he reiterated it, and that the point of podcasting and the point of being an active and engaged citizen is changing the world one conversation at a time. I can totally get behind that. I hope that you take something away from this conversation. Please enjoy this conversation with Adam Lowenstein. All right, everyone, welcome back to Feeding Curiosity. And returning to the show, we have Adam Lowenstein. Hey, Adam. Hey, Eric. Thanks for having me on again. Yeah, this is awesome. I, I know we left the first conversation at a cliffhanger and made it pretty clear we'd do a round two. Just had to figure out when, and so here we are. Um, yeah, lots of threads to pick from that last one, and I'm sure we will unspool others as we go. Yeah, definitely. An hour conversation only can you can only cover so much ground. <laughs> right. So, I I think the best place to start for this one is I just got back from a vacation to visit my brother in Denver, Colorado, and you had mentioned that you're from there, your family was raised there. So, I think to just talk about the differences in living in somewhere like Colorado versus other places in the world that are highly urbanized. I think Colorado is a unique place. Now having been there and spent some time there, I think I have a, a better opinion of being able to talk about it than I could have previously. Yeah. So Colorado is home for me and no matter where I live, it will always be home. And I think one of the things that's interesting about 
a place that one calls home is you often don't realize how much it's a part of your identity until you leave. And that was very much the case for me. I grew up in Colorado. It wasn't until I went to college that I actually started to think of myself as a Coloradan because when I was growing up, pretty much everybody I knew lived in Colorado or had was born and raised in Colorado. And so it wasn't something unique to root for the Denver Broncos or have a 5280, you know, mile high city sticker on your car. You didn't need those things because you had a Colorado license plate and everybody else had a Colorado driver's license. And that was just the circumstances. And so it wasn't until I moved to the East coast for college that I suddenly made Colorado a part of my identity. And that led to, as I talk about in my book, reframe the day, that led to a whole figuring out how to balance who I am as an individual in an authentic way with the different parts of my identity and not just seeing myself as inseparable from Colorado, which I talk about in the book. And we covered a little bit on our, in our conversation last time, this, this whole move for me back to Colorado to try to run for office and then realizing that I had been pursuing that dream because, or that plan because I thought it would lead to happiness and success and fulfillment, even though I hadn't really thought through what it actually entailed. I just loved the idea of it. It was very much a manufactured identity. And then I moved back to Washington, D.C. after that. And now having been in the United Kingdom for close to three years in London for the last two years, I have been thinking about Colorado and what it means to me in a about the state of Colorado, as we were talking about before we started taping, and as you mentioned from having been there earlier in the week, is the quality of life in the state of Colorado is pretty hard to beat in a lot of ways because you go one direction, you've got the mountains, you go the other direction, this bustling city with you know, professional sports teams, tons of young people, lots of energy, lots of companies moving there. And even more than that, the ethos, the culture of Colorado is not one tilted to the extreme of 80-hour work weeks. Colorado understands in a way that I think a lot of cultures on the East Coast of the U.S., and I'm way overgeneralizing here, but it's, <laughs> I think it certainly rings true to me, that there is a much, there's a sense in Colorado that when 4.30, 5 o'clock comes around, it's time for happy hour. And there's a sense in Colorado that when it snows a lot on a Tuesday, maybe you take Tuesday off and go skiing and then work on Saturday instead. <laughs> it is a state that prizes not just being outside, but balancing the rest of your life with how you work. Mm -hmm. And I didn't appreciate that until I moved to the East Coast and was especially after college living in Washington, D.C., spending some time in New York. And my head would be spinning of like, why are people running around with their heads down so busy and important all the time? And then having been in the East Coast for a while, I'd move back to Colorado and I'd wonder, why is everybody walking so slow? Why is everybody smiling at each other? Don't they have work to do? <laughs> and now being in the U.K., I balance, I think about the U.S. versus the U.K. in terms of work-life balance. And one of the, it took me six months of living in the U.K., not working in politics, which is what I had done before I moved here, to learn that I didn't need to check my email on the weekends. I didn't need to check my email in the evenings. That When I went on vacation, I was on vacation. No one expected me to check in all the time. I didn't need to send a beacon of my own availability constantly as one of the ironic things I think about coming from America to the UK is that other European countries, a lot of folks who live elsewhere in Europe, look at the UK and think they work way too hard. They never take any time off. But coming from America and look at the UK, I see folks here and I think they have it figured out in terms of work-life balance, which really just shows how relative yeah. all of this stuff is to where you grow up what the culture is, where you happen to be living, what the expectations are of people around you, and then how that impacts your own expectations for your, how you spend your time, your most valuable resource. Yeah. I really agree with a lot of what you said. And it, it's, it has a lot of thoughts for me on just understanding what, like the differences in mentality just by moving states over. I live in the suburbs of Chicago for all my life and just getting away for the couple of days that I was my, I got a 
different sense of two two really important things. One was like my parents. My parents are hyper type A, especially my mom. <laughs> I realized that she's always on the go and she like for her to be able to like down regulate and just not have a to do list or nothing to do is foreign to her. And so it's like some of these things you don't realize as you're growing up as a child of mm-hmm. like how your parents act until you do certain things like this. And I'm not going to lie. I, I was like stressed out by the end of it to some degree where I was like, I just need to be away from my parents. <laughs> We're stuck to being five feet away from each other at all times, either in a car or walking around. <laughs> it gets a little exhausting to some degree because you just need your own yeah, space. I feel like that's a universal experience. Yeah, I feel like it is very universal. I've just never felt like I've never had this experience of, oh, my God, I need to be away from <laughs> and then the other part is just the how you're like describing just how people live in Colorado. And that was one thing that really was different for me. Even though I live in the suburbs of Chicago, I think that like workaholic or always on the go attitude of having somewhere to be is very normal here where I live. And to have this this mentality shift where it's like, oh yeah, you don't have to be anywhere per se. Or going out to like different like they have large wide open spaces that I don't think it's unnormal, but like where I live is pretty industrialized. And so parks and stuff are planned where in Colorado, it's very just here's like a giant like reservoir. And they we just made a trail around right. it and it's huge. And then everyone takes their jet skis or stand up paddle boards out there or they're walking their dog. And it's just people are just chilling. And it's like this weird little mm-hmm. appreciative of like nature. It, it feels like there's like this stewardship and like conscientiousness of what it means to be a human and the impact you have not only on yourself, but the community at large. Like I saw a lot more solar panels mm-hmm. than I do see around here, even though Illinois is pretty good about that kind of stuff. I just saw a lot more of this, this, I don't know if it's long-term thinking, but just a respect for what we have around us that I just really appreciate. I'm like, Oh, this is like cool to see like ideas being implemented that seem far fetched where I currently live. If that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And I think there's a lot there that resonates with me. And I think part of it is when I go home to Colorado or when someone goes there and it's not limited to Colorado, it could be, you know, anywhere around the world. And I think part of the point of what we're talking about is that it doesn't have to be a cultural specific place or a specific geographic location that a lot of the things that make Colorado a great place to live are things that we can find wherever we are, but it's a lot harder in New York or Mm -hmm. Chicago or London or any number of other places working all the time. And Colorado has a lot going for it in terms of weather and Mm -hmm. 300 sunny days a year and access to the mountains. And so there's a lot of, like you said, lots of open spaces. So it has some natural advantages in terms of quality of life in that way. But I think one of the lessons for me of moving away from Colorado and then coming back to it and being surprised by the fact that people weren't working all the time and didn't feel the need to broadcast the fact that they were busy all the time was that these things are really self-imposed. It's not just that we're as individuals imposing these expectations on ourselves, but it is our workplaces, it is the people around us. It is for you and I, millennials, growing up with this expectation that we must constantly be achieving that the next accomplishment will bring us happiness and fulfillment, even though we know that cycle will continue until the end of time, unless we take a step out of it and say, I'm just going to do something right now for myself, or I'm just going to do something that does not help my career. I'm going to do it because I enjoy it. I'm going to do it because I need to recharge. I'm going to do it because it helps the people around me. And it is a skill now, unfortunately, and it is a privilege to be able to say that we don't have time for leisure because there are a lot of folks who are not busy all the time because they feel like they need to be available on Microsoft Outlook or Skype or Slack or something all the time. They're busy all the time because that's the only way they can make ends meet. With that very important caveat said, for those of us who are in a privileged position to work in knowledge jobs or something like that, where we do have pretty fixed hours, if we actually fix them and take time off or do have the opportunity to take vacation and things like that. A lot of this stuff is really, we can step back from it if we choose to do. And when I go back to Colorado, I am often reminded of that. And maybe it's because the mountains are there. Maybe it's because there is a culture of moving a little bit more slowly than folks on the East coast or other cities around the world. For whatever reason, 
it is acceptable in Colorado to do happy hour at 3.30 on a weekday in a way that it probably should be everywhere else. And it is a skill to learn how to have happy hour at 3.30 <laughs> and actually enjoy it and yeah. not spend the whole time be getting done or saying, oh, I'll meet up with you guys in an hour after I clean out my inbox for the 900th time, even though it's just going to be full again tomorrow. Yep. And the sad reality is it has become a skill to know how to have leisure for no other reason than to have leisure and to not spend every minute trying to produce something. And even though I feel like I have made progress in this journey, which I talk about in Reframe the Day, about recognizing my obsession with productivity that leads us down a lot of the different paths we toss in quick fixes to get more time to do more work more often. Even though I've written about that and I'm a lot more aware of it than I was before, it's still really hard to put this obsession with being busy and productive all the time to the side and not feel guilty about it and not feel like, oh, I'm just taking up space. I'm not doing anything useful. When in fact, the human experience is in itself. If you don't take the time to enjoy it and look around and go skiing on a Wednesday, if you can, then at the end of the day, what are we doing here? Yeah. And... Colorado is a place that has figured that out at least more so than some other places. Yeah. I, there's so much there for me. People on this podcast probably know, and I've talked about it at least in the beginning a lot more when I was still in school, but I was basically working full time and going to school full time up until, well, actually a year ago, really. I've only been out of school for a year. And so I was always this person who was doing double duty full-time student, full-time worker. I don't know how I did it, but I did it. And that means a lot of free time is not a thing. I basically had every day scheduled with something. And then every waking minute of my life that I wanted to do something else, I had to squeeze it in somehow. So if I wanted to go to the gym, it was like, okay, after work, you go to the gym, no questions asked, you got to do it. (laughs) Otherwise you don't have time to do it. And so this idea of being on the go and always having this hyper crammed schedule has just been in quotes, normal for me. And so I've used the last year for myself to unpack what is post post education life going to be like for me. And really that means is not over scheduling myself really. And it's like not saying there's a point where you have to try hard to and achieve things and prove that you can make things happen. But also the other part of that is, it's like a lot of that just comes with time. Like it's time behind the wheel of life that like things happen. And so it's like just taking these small little things and making them sustainable because I think a lot of us take this, <laughs> this approach to life of like, I'm behind, like look at all these people, this comparison effect, right? Like looking at someone and say, look at, they're so yep. much further ahead than me. So I got to make up for lost time. I got to burn 110% to make, to, to get to where they are if, because I want to be that or whatever that may be. And it just drives me I've always taken this different approach to it and say, maybe that that is true and it can work, but I think that might lead to more problems down the road that you'll have to unpack for yourself. For me, it was like when I was 20, 25 or so around there that I had these like first thoughts and I was like, I don't want to hit 35 and realize that everything I've been chasing has been for the wrong reasons. And then I have to have this midlife crisis, so to speak, and have to reinvent my life when it's already that much more difficult to reinvent who you are and what you do or whatever that may be. And it, so the, it's what you're talking about really strikes those chords for me because it's about weirdly enough is it's like this. I, I don't know why this word popped my head, but it's like being a whole person. Like we emphasize different parts of ourselves too much. Like we identify as a student or what we do in our job or just other things that we do and, and achieve in too much and if we can right realize that there's more to us like it that we do in our free time or when we have free time and, and actually appreciate it rather than me i'm wasting my time today or whatever it may be because i've definitely had that like itchiness where it's if i have nothing to do or nothing going on i'm like what am i doing this is weird it's, it's definitely a skill that's yeah. for sure yeah so there's a lot there that i think we should get into a little bit i think the challenge of doing something like going to school while working Mm -hmm. or having 
your attention pulled in different ways constantly would be another way I would describe that. I found the same thing when I was in grad school and working on Capitol Hill full time. Whenever I was at class in the evenings, then I would be thinking about or actually sending emails or thinking about all the emails I didn't send and the work I didn't do during the day. And then whenever I was at work during the day, supposedly sending those emails and doing that work, I was just thinking about all the schoolwork that I hadn't yet done or I needed to do for that night's class. And then I was too tired to stay awake in class anyways. And the whole time my attention was anywhere except for right in front of me. My focus Mm -hmm. was anywhere except for the task at hand or whatever I was doing. And that also applied in my life outside of school and work too, because my mind was always thinking of what do I need to do next? How much time do I have to do this? How much time do I have to do that? How will I get it all done? And it's very easy to pass a lot of time, a significant portion of one's life with that mentality of always thinking what's next, what's next, and assuming that if you get through enough of those what's next, then you will actually have time to take a step back and recharge. But the only time you'll have a time to take a step back and recharge is if you make time for it, which is easier said than done. It's not always possible. But the idea that it will come after some fixed amount of work or some fixed number of emails or LinkedIn connections or something is one of those stories that we tell ourselves. And I think it ties into what you're saying about seeing what other people are doing and having this sense of being left in a version of FOMO or this fear of missing out. And I think the fact that we all feel it to some degree or another reflects the fact that we all think we're the only ones who haven't figured it out. We all think that everybody else knows what they're doing, yeah. has figured out how to have more time to do more stuff and get more done and also be up to date on all of the latest Netflix shows and look all of the good podcasts and read all of the newest books. It seems like everybody else has got that figured out because that's the slice of them we see, mm-hmm. but we're all in the same thing, trying to figure out this same struggle and on a very logistical, you know, tangible note, what I have been trying to do. And we talked a little bit about in our last conversations about expectation setting and the fact if we expect ourselves to be insanely hyperproductive 24 hours a day, then inevitably we will burn out and inevitably we will come up short because that's an impossible expectation. And then we're going to feel frustrated and disappointed and we'll lose our motivation. And it is a skill to be able to set one's expectations for what we can achieve to a reasonable level because it means having self-awareness. It means recognizing how long things take. It means recognizing that we have amounts of willpower. There's that as well. But it's a skill to be able to accept those things and make decisions that say, I'm going to say no to this opportunity. I'm going to say no to doing this. I'm going to say no to this or that thing because I will be a miserable human being if I say yes to everything. I know that if I say yes to too much stuff, then I'm never going to be present for what's about all the other stuff that I'm supposed to be doing or I feel like I'm supposed to be doing. And what I have been trying to use recently to manage my expectations for what I can achieve in a given day or a given amount of time is this idea of time block planning that Cal Newport talks about in deep work. And he talks about on his podcast a lot. And the idea is not just having a to-do list, which readers have reframed the day. No, I love a good to-do list and that hasn't changed, but it's, it is taking a to-do list that may have 20 things on it on a given day and then assigning blocks of time for each of those tasks And when you start to do that by filling up a calendar with, I'm going to work on this project for an hour and a half. I'm going to work on my next email newsletter for an hour. Mm -hmm. I'm going to take an hour right now to make phone calls to try to get people to vote this November. And you start to fill up a calendar that way instead of just having this impossibly long list of tasks. And you start to realize, I'm going to get done three or four things on this list if I have an incredibly productive day. And so in a lot of ways forcing tasks from a list, which can be endless, into a calendar, which is very much finite, forces us to reckon with the limitations of our own time and will not only learn how to uh, predict how long or have some idea of how long it's going to take me to do certain things much better than I do now. Everything takes twice as long as I think it will. and But also... (laughs) To set more reasonable expectations for what I can get done. And then not only will I hopefully meet those expectations and exceed them, which gives me a lot of momentum and makes me feel good and also gets done what I need to get done, 
But in addition to that, it will also let me enjoy what I'm doing at any given time more because I won't be worried about all the other stuff I should be doing at that time. I can actually focus on the task that's in front of me, mm-hmm. which makes the interesting stuff better, but it also makes the mundane stuff less frustrating and less mundane and less painful because if you have an hour to send an email and that's the only thing you need to do in that hour, then you can actually take the time to say everything in that email that you want to say and not just dash it off while you're thinking about something else. So that's my one of my ongoing experiments is to implement time block planning in my day-to-day life and to be confirmed, but so far it's, it's already been a very useful exercise in forcing my expectations at least a little bit closer to reality and forcing me to reckon with the own, my own limitations and to be accountable to the expectations and the boundaries I set for myself and not just the boundaries that other people's needs set for me, the other calls that people put in my calendar, stuff like that. So to be continued on that front, but it really ties back into this idea of not just being present for what's going on in front of us, but for setting reasonable expectations for what we might be able to do in a given amount of time. And if we can get better at that, we can probably make our day-to-day existence a little bit more fulfilling, which can have a really big impact over a long period of time. Yeah, definitely. I think having those kind of Time block planning, I haven't heard of it. I probably heard people explain it or rehash it in ways specifically, but I really do enjoy that. And I think, like you're saying, is things take longer than you expect them to take. I remember having a boss who would always say, just five minutes, and then it never is five minutes. Um, It's never five minutes. (laughs) Yeah, and he would do that all the time. And I'm like, why does he do this every time? Because he always has this improper assumption of how much time something's going to take. And then it's the idea that I think when you don't, block out and say, I'm going to do these things in this time. What ends up happening, at least for me, is I wind up like thinking about the things that I want to do. And I spend more time thinking about the things that I want to do rather than actually doing them. So true. (laughs) So true. Like I have to do this. And it's funny that you brought up like the mundane part of this. I think there's mundane parts of every job, no matter how much you enjoy it. Even, even for me, I love doing this podcast, but one of the things that I've made myself do now is I have to re-listen to every episode. So no matter how long the episode is, I have to re-listen to the whole thing and go through and make the show notes to break it out into subject changes and do that. And it's not fun. It's For me, it's like studying again where I get to re-listen to what I said and be taking notes mm-hmm. on myself and be like, ooh, I could have done something better there or I'm getting meta here on podcasting. But <laughs> there's a lot of like <laughs> internal things that go on in that process and it's a slow ramp up time. It's like editing a paper where it's you think about doing it and then you have to talk yourself into doing it. It's that resistance. <laughs> yep. And then once I actually get started and, and get into it, then it's, oh, I'm done. Okay, cool. I got it out of the way. That wasn't as bad as I thought it was. And every time. Right. It doesn't matter. <laughs> like almost every episode, it's like always that one minute. You got to do it. You got to do it. You got to do it. But I still don't want to do it. <laughs> and then you finally do it. And then you never think about it again. It's, it never happened. It's yeah. how much something can loom, no matter how big or small the task on that to-do list mm-hmm. or in that you know mental list of things you need to get done. It's just there bothering you constantly, reminding you of what you have not yet achieved or finished. And then you do it and it's it just disappears. Yep. There's no like <laughs> celebration or anything like that. It just, it's gone on to the next thing. Yep. Like it almost happens like on clockwork. I get it done. You got to do that all over again with the next episode. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's so very- we should do you a favor. We'll just wrap this up right now. Yeah, make right. The episode shorter. Yeah. So- if, I, if I did them shorter, then it would be probably faster. But then I would be like, you're doing shorter episodes. Now you can do more releases, right? <laughs> yep. There you go. You know, <laughs> there's always a method to the madness. It's so crazy to me just to... There's always this never-ending rabbit hole. It's funny. I think this ties into fulfilling life and, and, and passion almost, where it's like people, it's almost, I don't know if you've heard of Cameron Haynes. He's a bone arrow, a bone arrow hunter, and he's like an ultra marathoner. He's just a crazy human being, to be honest. But he like is just, his thing is keep hammering and getting after it in life. And one of the things that people say to him on uh, social media is, must be nice, saying like the life he has it must be nice to be him kind of thing. And I, and I think we, we can have this external viewpoint of people and be like, it's nice, like you're an athlete or you're a CEO or you're whatever it may be. It seems like their quality of life is better than yours. 
But I feel like no matter who you are, there's going to be aspects in your life that you would wish were different, no matter what it is that you do. And no matter how much of like 90% of your life that you absolutely love, there's still going to be some percentage of it that you don't like. And that you would hope to change, but I think there's some of it that you just have to embrace the suck, to use a military term. Yep. (laughs) I think that's very true. And for me, it brings to mind that insidious part of our minds that just constantly shifts the threshold for happiness or well-being or a sense of accomplishment to whatever is next down the road, Mm. which just makes it that much more important that we try to find value and fulfillment and presence in our day-to-day experience because that finish line is always moving. And we talked about this a bit on their previous conversation, but I have spent time with corporate CEOs. I've spent a lot of time with politicians, the people who one would think have it all. Mm -hmm. They should be content and relaxed and fulfilled. They have made it. And it's just, it's on to the next thing for them. There's a lot of reasons why they're probably, some of them are not very happy. They have no control over their own time. They are relying on a lot of other people to do things that they would otherwise do. It doesn't live up to their expectations. There's a lot of unpleasant parts of those jobs. But on top of that, it's just the human mind shifts. And when we achieve a goal, and I'm thinking about my book here, like for a couple of years writing Reframe the Day, there's nothing I would have wanted more than to say, to have a copy of the book in my hands and say, this is finished. And that in itself should be a massive accomplishment. And if I, when I was deep in the second round of the manuscript, the idea that was ever going to come was almost impossible to imagine. And then it happened. And I was immediately on to, not even immediately on to, I had already moved on to how am I going to get people to buy this book? How am I going to get my name out there as an author? All these different things, like the finish line just shifts yeah. constantly. And one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot recently is I've been reading the new book by the author Isabel Wilkerson called Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents. She's an incredible writer. She wrote The Warmth of Other Suns about the Great Migration. And I would highly, it's not directly related to anything we've been talking about so far, but for folks who are interested in really understanding or more deeply understanding the state of America Mm -hmm. right now and the state of human beings gathering ourselves into collectives, into society, Isabel Wilkerson's new book, Cast, I would highly recommend. But I've been thinking about it also, not just in the subject matter, but in the craft of her creating this book. Mm-hmm. And I had previous, I finished her first book, The Warmth of Other Sons, in January. And I remember thinking at the time that she's a Pulitzer Prize winning author. This is an epic book. It's won all sorts of awards. <clears throat> it was recognized by President Obama when he was in the White House. And it was published in 2010, so why haven't I heard anything about what she's been up to in her career over the last 10 years? What happened? She's not on cable news. I don't see her on Twitter. I don't see her publishing all the time. And then her new book comes out a few months after I read her first book, and I see what she has been doing (laughs) over the last 10 years, which is head down doing the work. Mm -hmm. And she has been working on another epic masterpiece of a book. And the reason she wasn't doing all of the stuff we expect from authors and writers and creators right now being a, a pundit or a personality or visible all the time is because she was doing the work, the yeah. same work that enabled her to write a masterpiece the first time. And the second time you think about authors like Robert Caro, who has been writing his series on Lyndon Johnson since oh, 1976, yeah. and he's still working on it now. He is, he's the epitome of this, but there's so many creators who we don't, hear about them until something they publish a book they release an album and we wonder where have they been and you think about all the time they must have been head down working on their craft worrying that the world was going to leave them behind worrying that someone else was going to scoop them or they were going to get forgotten and no one would ever read their book or they'd never be finished with it and it's it speaks to it speaks to a lot of things including the modern media age and the age of instant gratification that we live in But it also speaks to this idea of no matter how accomplished you are, no matter how many books you've sold, no matter how many, this guy you're talking about, no matter how well he's known, no matter how many, say, medal, Olympic medals he's won, we only see them in the public eye at their moment of achievement. 
Yes. And all the other time in the background, they are slogging away, probably miserable half the time, just like we are. And the, But we only see it when it's finished. And there's, I think, a lot to that, especially at our age of instant gratification of fake it till you make it, of mm-hmm. own your personal brand, all of that stuff. Sometimes people are just in the background, not doing any of that, but they're just doing their work. And yeah. there's a lot that we can take from that, I think. Yeah, I I really like that topic a lot because for me... It's almost like this world of content for your content. Like you have to make like hooks, <laughs> hooks to get people. Well said, in. yeah. It's really strange. And to me, I've always had this idea of like self-promotion or just having to make more. Shouldn't the work speak for itself, regardless of what the results were or anything like that? Just let it be what it is. And it, it reminds me of the story that just broke or the passing of Chadwick Boseman, who was the actor who played Black Panther. Mm-hmm. And the thing that makes his passing shocking and even more surreal to, I think, most of us is that he, since 2016, he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, I believe, or colon cancer. I forget which one. But he was basically diagnosed with uh, stage three cancer. I'll make sure I have the show notes correct. And so from 2016 up until last Friday, he, which was the, like, September or August 28th or 29th. So just to date this for everybody, he was basically fighting cancer and didn't tell the world. And as someone in the public eye, as an actor, especially and a successful one at that, normally, you know, everything about what's going on or someone's going to break the story. Someone's going to hear some sort of gossip and then break it. And in his situation, nobody knew about it. And he went on to do so many great films beyond uh, Black Panther, but many others that he played historical African-American figures throughout history that I think empower a lot of society and do a lot more. And, and I'm in the process of actually writing an article about like heroes, like real life heroes. And I really think someone like Chadwick is like a true epitome of a hero because he could have easily gotten brownie points from the media and from any sort of media to say, hey, look, I did these movies, but also... I've been fighting these horrible disease that almost anyone you know is going to have it. There's like an 80% probability that either one of us will have it at some point in our life if we live that long. And I don't know. I think his story is incredibly powerful because it's we all struggle with things. And cancer is just one of these really visible struggles that, to put it darkly, but you usually don't win it. Um, or at least eventually you won't win it. And I just find it like utterly shocking to hear a story like that and then to have someone let their work speak louder than their own personal (laughs) life and let the message they share with people be that much more powerful because they kept a certain section of their life private from the rest of us. Yeah, absolutely. I think it says a lot about the age in which we live, although it also, my understanding of history is that they may not have had social media a hundred years ago, but there were other ways in which people projected mm-hmm. the self that they wanted to see, they wanted the world to see, which was always very different or often very different than the one that they actually, their lived experience reflected. And it's, you know, to bring it to a much more kind of seemingly trivial, but I think also telling example is I've been wrestling throughout the publication of my book before, during, and now after came out at the end of April, I've been mm-hmm. wrestling with how much time and effort and money do I want to spend promoting this book? Mm-hmm. Because I wrote the book, not because I wanted to promote it, although that's been incredibly rewarding by <laughs> having conversations with people like you, mm-hmm. but it's also like, I wrote the book to make sense of the world. And yes. I noticed the more time I spent promoting it and, you know, pitching it to different people who I thought should write about it, or I hope they would write about it or share it with their followers, the less time I was spending writing and the less I was getting that same sense of fulfillment and satisfaction that I get from writing. And I made the decision after I'd been off social media for a few years, I write about being off social media in the book. And then I decided to get back on Instagram because I thought that's what I needed to do to promote my book. And I spent three or four months doing that and there was some success and I managed to meet some really good people through social media. But I realized after three or four months of doing that, I was just thinking about social media all the time 
and I was refreshing to see who were the new followers <laughs> who liked my posts. Yeah. Um, was it leading to different promotional opportunities? And it was, but I decided that the cost of that was just too much because it was taking me away from writing. It was taking me away of, from thinking about ideas, taking me away from reading, taking away from being present with my partner or friends and family. And even though it is, so no more Instagram for the most part, no more tweets for the automatic ones. And even though it means that I will, undoubtedly there will be promotional opportunities that I will miss out on because of that, the trade-off of being, having that, it wasn't about time. I could do it all in an hour or two a week, but it was about focus. It was always in the back of my mind. And as soon as I made the decision, I'm done with social media again, I'm going to focus on writing ideas come back in. I start <laughs> publishing my newsletter more frequently. I start writing more stuff down and it's just, it was like flipping a switch. Yeah. And again, it's a very trivial example, especially compared to an icon who we lost and we've lost sadly a lot of really significant figures in history over the last few months. Mm -hmm. So it pales in comparison to that, but I think it's really telling about the choices we make about how we spend our time and we think we have to be on social media. We think we have to share everything mm -hmm. with the world. We think that the people who are doing so manage to do it all. They, they, they have managed to figure out how to have all this time to get everything done and then more. But no, every, no one has time to do it all. It's impossible. And the only thing that we're going to find at the end of that quest to, to do it all is just burnout and exhaustion <laughs> and defeat. And it sounds really dark, but it means there is an opportunity to just reject that way of operating and try to reorient ourselves back towards focusing on what brings us fulfillment, what matters to the people around us, what makes a difference in our communities, and then really just scrapping the other stuff. And easier said than done, like a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about. Yeah. But easier said than done, but not impossible to do. Yeah, I think it's like this idea of what's normal, right? It's like where we started this with talking about yep. Colorado and where you live. It's reevaluating is normal as a millennial and people who are embed themselves in these technologies apart from social media. We, we inadvertently project like, this is what everyone's doing. So I, then I have to do this too, or I should be doing it this way. And, or you see some sort of influencer who's, you want to know how you get successful. You do these things on these social media platforms and do it this way. And you know how they game the system and it's, it's like gaming it authentically, but it's still gaming it right. Or playing the game as they may, may right. phrase it. And I think as a smaller creator, you have to pick your battles wisely. Like you said, it's like when you just say made that decision that you're not going to do it, then all of a sudden you had that much more mental space back I like to think of things in analogies as an engineer. And so for me, I think of computer terms. So if you think of all the tasks you have running, it's like tabs of a browser open. Google Chrome is a memory hog. So your brain does the same thing. In, not really, but in theory. And so if you're thinking about yeah. social media posts and your next blog and your next newsletter and your next release, and maybe you got a book draft you're working on, you got all of these tabs open in your brain. And they're all taking up 1%, 2%, and then maybe the bigger ones, your significant others taking up a big portion of your memory. You have to be really mindful of where the remaining energy is going. And if you want to make things that are really important for you, like that most important so you actually can execute on them, closing these tabs that are taking up 5% of your memory, like social media might do, is really important. Because if you say no to those things, then that gets immediately distributed into the things that you really care about. For me, I like to decompress with video games. But I also have to be really careful with video games. Because if I get in there and I know if my friends are on especially, like I'll check the chat channel that we all have hang out in. And especially in times of COVID, that's how we really communicate with each other. <laughs> it's really easy for me to see, oh, people are online. I'm going to jump in there for a little bit. Next thing, three hours go by that I didn't plan on, <laughs> on doing it. And there was like right. the next game, dude. Hey, let's keep going. Let's keep going. It's so easy to kick play, keep hitting play again. And it's I have to be really mindful of that because it's okay. It's okay to unplug like you've been talking about. You don't have to be on your to-do list all the time. But there's also a point where you're wasting more time on something than you actually 
is actually beneficial for you, what your goals are. And so that's just like one of my real life examples that I probably go through this, I don't know, a lot <laughs> because it's like how I disconnect and unplug if I'm not working out or something. So it's, if I'm behind my computer, it's you're probably playing a video game just to chill. And some people have Netflix, some people have video games and I've definitely fallen in the video game category. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's such a good reminder of one of the more foundational aspects to all of what we're talking about is that as we talked about last time, these things that we are trying to get better at our practices and we're never going to get them perfect. We're never going to do them without error or misstep or shortcoming. Mm -hmm. And also because of that, there has to be an element of self-forgiveness built into it and forgiving other people as well. Yeah. But for the purposes of this conversation, like if we are not cutting ourselves some slack from time to time, and if you are not saying after a five hour video game binge, that was supposed to be a 15 minute break. Okay. I feel bad. I shouldn't have done that. I'm really tired and I have lots of stuff to do tomorrow, but also maybe I needed that and whatever it is happened, get back at it tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And every aspect of the book writing, publishing and promotion process has required me to practice a lot of self-forgiveness and lower my own expectations, not as a means of giving up, but as a means of matching how I see the world with what is real as opposed to what I want it to be. And tied into that is just as we need to give ourselves a little bit forgiveness here and there, a little bit of slack. Um, it's just as important to do that for the people around us too, whether it's work colleagues or friends or partners or family members or whoever just people we happen to meet outside mm -hmm. because just like you said about this or that person who might be in the public eye doing one thing, we have no idea what that person is experiencing behind the scenes. The same is true for the person we just happen to bump into while we're waiting for the bus. Yeah, And it's that old saying of every person you meet is fighting a great battle that you know nothing about or something along I, those lines. I love that saying. And that's true for us. And that's true for everybody else too. And the more I think we can recognize that, the more we can be aware that we're all trying to figure this thing out together. And regardless of what we may be projecting on the world, what we want the world to think of us, we are all fighting those various battles internally. And it's okay to forgive people when they come up short for their goals, what we expect of them, what they expect of themselves. And it also has to be okay for us to forgive ourselves too mm -hmm. and to recognize we're all fighting our own battles. And especially we've all been reminded of this over the last six months or so, but it was just as true before COVID-19 <laughs> as yes. it is now. We've just all had it thrust right in front of us now, which makes this for all of the, the pain and suffering that COVID-19 has caused. It makes this, a, an, it really it makes it a, not an opportunity that makes it sound like too positive of a thing, but we are where we are and events around us are reminding us to focus on what's in front of us and to cut ourselves some slack. And it's on us whether or not we, we get that message. Yeah, absolutely. It reminds me of what you're talking about with the book, trying to understand the what the situation that we're in, both socially, politically, health-wise, all of it, right? There's so many different facets of the situation going on. And I think I'm not alone in saying this, that in like looking at the news, looking at social media, things can feel really chaotic. And it feels like maybe, I don't know, I wasn't alive during the Vietnam War, but I can't really think of a, a, a like more precarious time in society where at one point it feels like it's, falling apart and everyone's losing their mind and the other part is you're living in your own little place and everything seems fine you're like this is really strange or just people not agreeing and fighting with each other on just ideological planes and part of this podcast for me is always trying to just understand the world like you said the reason they wrote the book was to understand the world and mm -hmm. to me I, I just feel like this situation that we're all in is so much it gets boiled down into these viewpoints of A or B or whatever color you want to subscribe to that. And I don't care about ideological viewpoints in per, per se. I'll talk about them abstractly, but I would much rather talk about people because people make up viewpoints. People make up parties. People are politicians. And like to pick and choose and, and distill them down into just these 
caricatures or, or in general, just characterizing people is not fair. Like you said, everyone's fighting a battle they don't, you know nothing about. And I really anchor myself in that. Even someone who I may not agree with, I would much rather have a conversation and ask them questions and be like, hey, can you tell me about why you believe that? Rather than just assuming something about that person and say, that person's this, so therefore they're, I don't like them, whatever that may be. And I, I feel like that reaction is so quick or even quicker than it was. I, I thought this was bad in 2016 and it, it seems to have escalated <laughs> since then and maybe exasperated yeah. by the pandemic. But I, w- I would just love, we're almost at an hour already, <laughs> and it's, I would just love for you to just talk about your, your thoughts on just the how you see this current moment and then wrapping up because you mentioned voting and I I would love to just hear more of your thoughts on it since you were part of the political system at least for some time and just what what you would have to say to people who are you know getting out to vote and all of that stuff because it seems to be I've never seen a time where people not even just people but companies are helping people mobilize to vote period and I think I hope it stays that way to some degree because it, it should always have been this important in general. <laughs> yeah, I think that it is people often say that it is a luxury or privilege to live in a society where you don't have to worry about politics mm-hmm. because it means that things are probably going pretty well. Things are working the way we want them to work. But as President Obama has been saying throughout his time in public life from his DNC speech in 2004 all the way through his DNC speech just a couple of weeks ago, Mm -hmm. the job of being in a democracy is the job of citizen. It is something that we have to keep working at. And for most of us, that means just voting every time we have the opportunity. But as we see in America in a way that looks insane to democracies around the world, in America, a lot of people are prevented from voting. They have perhaps been incarcerated and they serve their time and the state does not recognize that and keeps them from voting or people of color across the country who are aggressively disenfranchised and don't have the opportunity to vote. And as we were reminded with the passing of Congressman John Lewis a few Mm -hmm. weeks ago, the battle that black Americans have fought for centuries since long before America was the United States of America to be treated as human beings, as citizens, all the way up through having the right to vote. That battle is very much ongoing right now. Mm -hmm. And the least we can do, those of us who do have the opportunity to vote, is to vote. It does not solve everything. It is completely, I think, a lot of people who don't vote but would legally be able to if they wanted to, people have reasons for not voting. And I think sometimes those reasons are dismissed when, in fact, There are a lot of communities, including a lot of communities of color, where voting has not led to change and has not led to things that they were promised. And it is completely understandable that folks find themselves frustrated and cynical about the whole process. And part of what makes this current moment so unsettling, depressing, stressful, anxiety-inducing is the fact that there is so much cynicism and shamelessness being leveraged against all of us, against people, against potential voters, to try to make people think that the system can't work. And there are a lot of reasons that people are taking that approach. But as we're seeing, it's very effective to push people away from voting, to push them out of the process, to make them think that their votes don't count, that change is impossible. And I think... To come back to what you were saying in the early part of your question, the moment that we live in right now, because of social media, not just all the ways that these platforms are manipulated and manipulate us to spread news that is not real, to spread misinformation, to stoke fear, to push people towards extremes, like all of the ways these algorithms manipulate us and in turn manipulate our society can be leveraged by foreign actors and domestic actors to push us in different directions. Like on top of that, even if we're using these platforms for what they were ostensibly designed to do, which is to connect us and share information because it's always available. Just as we found during the first few weeks of lockdown due to Mm COVID-19, we are reminded time and time again that we often go to the news thinking 
it will get us some sort of answer, help us feel better, help us feel like we are closer to understanding what's going on, reassure us in some way. And in a sense, refreshing the Twitter feed or opening up the New York Times website, feel it is an action we can take. And it feels like doing that is something. But of course, most of the time just reading the news leaves us more depressed and forlorn and feeling hopeless and frustrated. So what I have tried to do over the last few years, and this has been a process for me too, because up until the eight years until 2017, I was working in politics. And so I felt like I had a little bit more control over the process than a lot of other people who weren't working in that world. Because even though I was just one individual staffer among thousands of Hill staffers, among hundreds of thousands of people working in politics in some way or another, at least I had a foot in the door and I could do a little bit here and there. And that made me feel like I was doing something. Now that I've left that world, now that I'm in the UK working in the corporate world, I don't feel like I have that same political involvement day to day. And I've, that's been tough. And it's made me appreciate more this sense of there's nothing I can do. It's all out of my hands. And as we talked about on the last podcast, one of the toughest things for human beings to accept is things that are outside of our control and to let those things go. And so what I would encourage folks to do, which is what I have been trying to do, which is what I'm going to be doing actually after we finish taping here is I'm going to, uh, the microphone's already plugged in. I'm going to start making some phone calls to other potential voters who are living abroad mm, and okay. reminding them to turn their ballots in and reminding them to request their ballot in the first place and reminding them to mail them back as soon as possible so their votes get counted and reminding them to submit the backup ballot that is available to all Americans living abroad to make sure that their votes get counted. And the difference between making a half hour of phone calls and make it, spending a half hour reading the news, the difference in how I feel after that is literally, not literally, but pretty close to literally night and day in terms of feeling optimistic and hopeful versus feeling cynical and hopeless. Yeah. And that's not to say that we don't have reason to feel like we are in an ominous chapter in history. And I'm speaking from a very American perspective here. But it's certainly, while the American election looms large, there are lots of other countries around the world who are going through tougher times, have already been in tougher times, or are in a similar place to the United States in their political trajectory at the moment. And, But from an American perspective, we don't do ourselves any favors by pretending that things are not serious. Yes. But we also don't do ourselves any favors by wallowing in the same doom scrolling that <laughs> plagued so many of us yes. in the early months of COVID-19. And we can do the same thing with political news. And I'm not one of those people who's going to say, don't read the news at all. Everyone is in it for themselves. The system is broken. I think the systems, many systems are very broken and need a lot of reform. But I think we have an obligation as citizens to stay up to date on what's going on, to make sure we're voting, to make sure our friends and family are voting, and to use a lot of the tools that you and I have talked about today and in our previous conversation that I talk about in Reframe the Day, the tools that allow us to be more present, more fulfilled, more engaged, more self-aware individuals. Mm -hmm. That's not just for us to make ourselves feel better. By doing that, we make ourselves stronger and more capable of showing up at times like this. It could be an election that demands us to get involved and help out a little bit to do our little part. Mm -hmm. It could be a crisis in our family or a crisis with a friend when people just need us to show up and be there and drop everything. So I think these moments are what all of this self-improvement, self-optimization work is for. It's not just to make us feel better, but it's to make us prepared and make us stronger for these moments. And I would encourage folks not just to get involved and make sure you are registered to vote, but do that not just that, but definitely do that. Start there. And then if you have time, get other people in your social circle, your friends, your colleagues, family members, make sure they are all registered to vote. And then if you still have time, you still have energy, still want to get more involved, start making phone calls, find a, a candidate you believe in, find a cause you believe in, get out there and get in the fight in some form or another. It is remarkable how rewarding, but also reinvigorating, recharging that kind of stuff can be. And we forget that because it's a lot 
easier to sit at home and refresh Twitter and read political newsletters like I will probably end up doing at some point later tonight. <laughs> but I undoubtedly feel a lot better after making some phone calls and talking to voters in yeah. Spain or Switzerland or Sweden who I've talked to recently than I will reading the news. And it's all a balance. As we talked about, we all have to cut each other some slack. We got to cut ourselves some slack. But I would 100% hope that everybody listening you can't give up on politics because as President Obama said in his DNC speech, there are people who are counting on us being cynical and being mm. basically giving up our power and saying, this is so broken that I'm just not going to engage. There are people counting on us and there are institutions counting on us doing that. So the power we have, the control we have is to vote, to take that back, to get engaged. And even if we can't vote for whatever reason, for not 18 or you have been disenfranchised, pushed out of the system, you can still make phone calls. You can still help other people vote. There are ways to get involved. And the worst thing we can do is in these next 60, 70 days until election day, the worst thing we can do is not use all of this training, all of this self-improvement that we've been talking about to to do some good, to get out there and get in the fight. Because this is what it's for. It's not just for making ourselves feel better, although that in itself is is good. It's for getting in the fight. And as John Lewis would say, getting in good trouble. (laughs) Yeah, I love that message. And it's not something I normally get to talk about too much on here, at least not recently. And to hear your take on it and just, I think you're completely right with the point of being, becoming a better human selfishly is so that you can look at the world and say, here's how we can help society and not just the United States, but the entire human population. And some people may look at that and sound may sound insane, but I really truly believe that. I think any sort of change occurs only because enough people are living a certain way that allows that change to be normal. And the only way you, the only thing you can control is your own actions and behaviors And so you have to lead by example, regardless of whether or not you see yourself as a leader. I think you just have to do it if you believe in it. And I think like you're making phone calls is is one of the best examples of this I've heard. It's incredible to, to actually hear someone making the effort to do that, especially for other foreign Americans who are living abroad. That's incredible to hear that, especially when not just yesterday I saw a video where Trump was telling people to double vote in Tennessee. And <laughs> I was like, how is this even possible right now? And it, it's just, I don't even understand it to some degree. But yeah, not yeah, to do- And it's amazing to think when folks actually hear this episode, because even if this we're taping in the beginning of September, mm-hmm. say it, it, you posted in a week or two, yeah. the news cycle will have moved so fast, even in that time, let alone a couple of months from now, yeah, who knows what it'll say which by just that. serves <laughs> to highlight how insane this moment feels because things are moving so quickly. Yeah. E- even for me doing a week, a weekly show or a weekly podcast that sometimes takes three weeks to get out feels slow sometimes and I was even it was one of the things that even feels weird to me sometimes where I'm like ooh, I don't know if I should I would used to think that if it would take too long for me to get things out then I'm like this is already old so there's no point in releasing it and it's no one knows if no one heard it before then it's like the idea of that long working on a long project or working on a book for many years I think part of it is respecting what it is and whatever development cycle you you put on something it doesn't need to necessarily be faster in general. It does a different topic to close on, but yeah, I really appreciate all of the thoughts you have, Adam. This is, it's really enjoyable for me to just hear all of the ways you've been able to internalize and not only that, but apply the different facets of your interests to helping people, but also helping at a broader scale. I appreciate that. And I really appreciate the chance to have these conversations and we might have to reconvene for round three, perhaps on the other side of November 3rd or November 4th, yeah. the first Tuesday in November. And one of the things that what you were saying made me think of is this quote that I have at the beginning of Reframe the Day or toward in the introduction, I think, from Robert Sapolsky, who's a psychologist mm-hmm. who has spent his lifetime and career studying how stress impacts 
not just our lived experience, but like literally impacts our bodies. Stress has a toxic impact on the human body. Mm -hmm. And there's a reason that people living through trauma or people who are living through difficult circumstances have higher health risks and lower life expectancy because it's stress impacts our experience of the world and it impacts our bodies. Anyways, that's just to credentialize him. Um, he wrote this book, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers, which is all about this. And it's a great book that I would definitely recommend to people for learning more about the role of, we, we often discount the role that stress has on our health, physical health, not just mental health, but physical health. Anyways, he has this line where he says, that is, and paraphrasing, an amazing source of control that we all have is the ability to do some good right in front of us. And this ties into what we were talking about before in terms of expectation setting. If our expectation is, I will only be successful if I change the whole world, then we are ourselves up for failure because even the most well-known person in human history who did change the world, they didn't change the world on their own. But by setting our expectations a little bit differently and saying, I'm just going to be the best person I can for everyone I encounter today the person who's driving the bus I get on, the person I meet when I walk into my office. If we just set that as our expectation, not only are we changing the world by showing up as a good, decent, friendly, kind, compassionate, empathetic person, but we are going to exceed our expectations. And that just creates a virtuous cycle of wanting to be more like that all the time. And that just makes us feel better. So what I would say <laughs> to folks to close this out is lower your expectations in a, a productive way like that. And I use productive very intentionally there because we spent a lot of our last conversation talking about the curse and obsession of productivity. Yes. But this is productive in a sense that I think is really worth striving for. So thank you for having me on again. Mm -hmm. I hope we can do another round of this. Yeah. And let me just say two plugs. One, mm -hmm. everybody go get registered to vote and vote and if you have any questions about that, there are tons of resources online, but you can always reach out to me at adaml.blog, and that is my second plug, which is my website, adaml.blog. Sign up for my email newsletter, reframe your inbox, check out my book, Reframe the Day, and send me a note. My email address is on the website. I would love to you know, talk with all listeners who are interested in these topics, but the biggest thing is to say thanks to you, Eric, for doing a great show and for having me on again. These are really fun conversations. No, thank you, Adam. This is really fun, and it's been enjoyable just to hear your take and, and hearing just how to think about the world in this weird cultural moment. I think part of the proclivity of being a young person in this time makes it feel like you can't have an opinion or weighing in a way where you use your words is not the right way to go about it because if so many people are, are you know out there protesting physically and... I've made the decision that I can make a bigger impact doing this and move the needle in this way than I can move the needle actually physically being present at a protest. And so for me, this is my way of hopefully, you know, sending a message to get people to listen on any and all spectrums of whatever level that may be. So I just really appreciate that I can keep doing that just by one conversation at a time. <laughs> One conversation. At a, that's a good motto. That pretty much sums up what we've been talking about for the last hour and a half. It sums it up in one very concise sentence. <laughs> Changing the world one conversation at a time. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> All right, Adam. Thank you so much. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Feeding Curiosity. I hope you all learned something or at least got you thinking. If you want to dive in deeper, please head over to feedingcuriosity.net to find related links or just more podcasts and blogs that we've posted there. On top of this, please consider subscribing to our newsletter to stay up to date on the latest happenings on the website. Thank you all for joining me one more time and we'll catch you all in the next episode.